Uh, Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 2. I will read verses 12 through 17. Thank you, my darling. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is the sixth week in our year-long series of sermons through the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation as a whole is a letter that the Apostle John wrote to the churches in the Roman province of Asia, what we call Turkey today. The whole book of Romans has, I mean, of Revelation has 22 chapters. And in chapter 2 and chapter 3, we find seven short messages from Jesus to seven churches in Asia. These messages are like little letters inside of the big letter. This morning, we read the little letter to the church at Pergamum. In verse 13, Jesus says to the church at Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. All of the churches mentioned in Revelations chapter 2 and chapter 3 are in pagan Roman cities. In all of these pagan Roman cities, Christians and Jews would have been a small minority. In all of these cities, most of the people worship one false god or another. In fact, it was ordinary to make offerings to many different gods. So why would Jesus say that Satan's throne is in Pergamum. What was special about the pagan worship in that city? Keep in mind that every false god is just a puppet of Satan. In the city of Ephesus, there was an enormous temple to Artemis, the Greek goddess of hunting. In Pergamum, there was a temple to Asclepius, the Greek god of medicine. But of course, there really isn't any Artemis. There really isn't any Asclepius. These 
things don't exist. Okay, uh, they are they they are just uh, just like there are no orishas, uh, as many people in Brazil worship. Okay, you can go to Brazil today, and there are people who worship these god called orishas. They don't exist. All of the gods of paganism are imaginary. They're just puppets. But behind those puppets, controlling those puppets, is Satan. And Satan is real. How do I know that Satan is real? Well, because Jesus says that he's real. So why does Jesus say that Satan's throne is in Pergamum? What was special about that city? In all major Roman cities, there would have been many temples to various gods and goddesses. It wasn't the presence of temples to Athena or Zeus or Neptune that made Pergamum special. Every city had those. What was special about Pergamum was that there was a temple for the worship of the emperor. Now in times that would soon come, a little bit after this period, the Roman Senate would declare the emperor to be a god and would require a kind of patriotic worship of the emperor. When the really big persecutions of the church began, it was the result of Christians refusing to make offerings at the shrine of the emperor. The Romans didn't care if you didn't worship Zeus or Mercury or Pluto because everyone had their favorite gods and it was understood that you would make sacrifices at your patron god's altar. But if you didn't make sacrifices at the shrine of the emperor, well, that proved that you weren't patriotic and that you were a danger to the state. And many Christians were slaughtered because while they paid their Roman taxes and while they obeyed ordinary Roman laws, they refused to worship the leader of the state. In Pergamum, the first temple for the worship of the Roman emperor was built and it was the beginning of what would later become a religion throughout the empire. It was an unholy marriage of religion and politics. And Jesus called that temple in Pergamum Satan's throne. So let's make a leap from the ancient world to the 21st century because you know nothing is new under the sun and Satan's tricks don't change over time. If anyone claims that a particular politician is the Messiah, if anyone suggests that a particular politician is our Savior, then that person is a prophet of Satan. Because Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world. Now, the day will come when Jesus will return to earth And he's going to come with the armies of heaven. He's going to come with a hundred million angels. But Jesus won't be running for election because Jesus already is the king. The Romans were guilty of all kinds of sins. The Romans worshipped hundreds of false gods. But when they married their religion to their government and made a god out of the head of their state, Well, they sank to a new level of evil. Now, here's the interesting thing. It was possible to be a good and patriotic 
Roman and still be a Christian. You could pay your taxes. You could be a good neighbor. You could obey the laws. You could pray for the emperor. In fact, Christians were instructed to pray for the emperor. But the Apostle Paul says, and and the Apostle Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. But here's what you cannot do as a Christian. You cannot say that the emperor or any human institution is your savior. You cannot place your hope and trust in a human as if he were God. In verse 13, Jesus says to the church at Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where, this, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. The persecution in Pergamum already was bad enough that there had been martyrs. Antipas was a Christian martyr in Pergamum. Perhaps he refused to make an offering at Satan's throne. Jesus commends the church for not denying the faith, for holding fast to the name of Jesus, because Jesus has the name that is above every name. Jesus' name is above the name of every emperor and every president. His name is above the name of every person who will appear on an election ballot. And all of the emperors and all of the presidents and all of the people who rule other people and all of the people who want to become rulers of people, all of them one day will have to bend their knee to Jesus whether they like it or not. And so Jesus commends the church at Pergamum. They held to the faith even to the point of death and they clung to the name of Jesus alone. That's on the good side. But Jesus still has a complaint against this church and it's the same complaint that he had against the church in Ephesus namely that they tolerated the Nicolaitans in their midst now we discussed this a couple of weeks ago the Nicolaitans were people who called themselves Christians but who took the freedom that we have in Christ as permission to live in a lawless way As Christians, we know that we're not saved by the law. We're not righteous enough to earn our way to heaven. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person is a sinner, but God's law requires perfect obedience. So if we are to be counted as righteous by God, it must be because God gives to us, he imputes to us a righteousness that we didn't create. If we are to be counted as righteous by God, God must impute to us the righteousness of Jesus. And that righteousness is perfect. And the way the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us is by faith in Jesus. By faith we are united to Christ. Our sin is taken by Christ and it's nailed to the cross. The death of Jesus pays the penalty for my sin. And the perfect record of Jesus... He lived a sinless life. The perfect record of Jesus is credited to us. And so we inherit the reward of that perfect righteousness. And that reward is eternal life. Jesus takes our sin and in return we receive his perfect righteousness. We wear that righteousness like a borrowed robe. 
Sometimes I wear my preaching robe because I've spilled coffee on my shirt earlier in the day. And when I put that robe on, you cannot see the stain of the coffee. When I'm united to Christ, His perfect righteousness is draped over me like a spotless robe. And when the day comes that I have to stand before God and my judge, he's not going to see my sin. He's not going to see how I lived. He's just going to see that beautiful robe of Jesus. He will see the perfect life of Jesus. That's our only hope. If you're hoping to make it to heaven because you're a nice person, you're doomed. We receive as a free gift by faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ, and that allows us to inherit eternal life. So, as Christians, we cannot be saved by the law of God. The law can only condemn us for our failures. We're saved by grace and not by the law. But the Nicolaitans made the mistake of thinking that the law no longer applies to Christians. Since I'm saved by faith in Jesus and not by keeping the law, then I can go and sin and God doesn't care. That's a Nicolaitan mistake. In verse 14 and 15 of our passage this morning, Jesus explains the error of the Nicolaitans by comparing it with Balaam and Balak. Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, last year we preached through the book of Numbers, so many of you remember the story of Balaam and Balak. Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt. They went to Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments. And then they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. And at the end of 40 years, the children of Israel are ready to enter into the Promised Land. They're on the eastern shore of the Jordan River. They're right across from the city of Jericho. And they're camped in Moab, which is ruled by King Balak. And the king is terrified of all of these Israelites who have descended on his territory like a swarm of locusts. And so he hires the pagan prophet Balaam to come and to curse the Israelites. Balaam comes and he offers seven sacrifices to seven gods and he tries to pronounce a curse, but every time he tries, out of his mouth comes a blessing rather than a curse because Almighty God won't let Balaam curse the Israelites. So then Balaam and Balak come up with a new plan. Instead of cursing the Israelites, they would use the Moabite women to seduce the Israelites into sexual sin and into making sacrifices to the god Baal. And that plan works. And it turns out that it's a disaster for Israel. Israel was not injured by an attack from the outside. Israel was corrupted from the inside. According to Jesus, the Nicolaitans who claimed to be Christians but who had a debased and worldly sexual ethic, they are the same as Balaam and Balak. The Nicolaitans don't try to injure the church by attacking it from the outside. Instead, they destroy the integrity of the church 
through corruption on the inside. Richard D. Phillips, who wrote one of the commentaries on Revelation that I'm using, he writes this. He writes, Today, Nicolaitans would be foremost among those urging the ordination of homosexuals as ministers since this compromise is demanded by the secular culture, end quote. Now, it is important for us to notice that we actually don't know much about the Nicolaitans today. They were important enough at the time that John is writing for Jesus to mention them twice in the book of Revelation, but since that time they disappeared. The church remained true to what the apostles taught, and these people who claimed to be Christians but were teaching a get-along-with-the-world sexual ethic, well, they're just forgotten today. As someone who has studied church history, I believe our modern Nicolaitans also will simply disappear over time. Our modern Nicolaitans, and there are groups in all mainline denominations, our modern Nicolaitans congratulate themselves as progressives and claim that the future belongs to them. They believe that by being more like the world, the world will like them more. But if church history is our guide, these new doctrines will simply fade over time. And church statistics of the past half century confirm this. Every denomination that ordains homosexuals is a shrinking denomination. Every denomination that ordains homosexuals is smaller this year than it was last year. If you were Satan and you hated the church and wanted to reduce the influence of the church in the world, a perfect strategy would be to convince the church to adopt the sexual ethics of the world because every church that has done that has gotten smaller and weaker. Now, the church worldwide continues to grow, but that growth is among Bible-believing evangelical churches. And as we hold fast to the name of Christ, and as we continue to teach that same faith that the apostles taught, we too grow and prosper to the glory of God. But let me get to the part of this sermon that I want to preach. Let me get to the good part. Jesus commends the church at Pergamum for holding fast to the name of Christ, for not denying the faith. He rebukes the church at Pergamum for tolerating the Nicolaitans, and he threatens to visit them with a sword if they don't stop tolerating what is intolerable. But then comes the good part. Jesus makes promises to those who remain true and hold fast until the end. Here's what Jesus says. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, this word conquer 
is a very important word in the book of Revelation. In fact, this word conquer appears in the book of Revelation more than any other place in the Bible. In each of the seven little letters to the seven churches in Asia, Jesus promises something to those who conquer. To the conquerors in the church at Ephesus, he promises, I will give you to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To the conquerors in the church at Smyrna, he promises that they will not be hurt by the second death. To the conquerors in the church at Thyatira, he promises that he will give them authority over the nations. To the conquerors in the church at Sardis, he promises that they will be clothed in white garments and Jesus will never blot out their name from the book of life to the conquerors in the church at Philadelphia he promises I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God to the conquerors in the church at Laodicea he promises I will grant them to sit with me on my throne this is big stuff but let's take a look at the promise to the conquerors at the church at Pergamum to the one who conquers I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now the book of Revelation is full of symbolism and it's full of hidden meanings. And here we must think about what the hidden manna is and what the white stone is and what the new name is. What Jesus is saying to those who conquer when they receive the manna and the stone. What's the the meaning of this little passage? So first a word of warning. And by the way, uh, some of you have not been coming to uh, my Sunday school class. And I've written your name down. (laughs) It's in a different book. Okay, it's a different, I don't know what that name of that book is, but I've written them down. Don, I didn't see you there this morning. You can come next week because we get to talk about some of these passages uh, in in greater detail and it it would be really helpful. So I'm having to give you just kind of the short version of this. A word of warning. Uh, And this is a warning that we need to carry with us throughout the book of Revelation. Many times the symbols that show up do not have a one-to-one correspondence. We get into trouble if we read the book of Revelation like a cryptographic puzzle that will be cracked if we simply have the right code. Often, it is better to read the book of Revelation the way that we read poetry, which is full of images and symbols. In a poem, there's not a one-to-one correspondence between a symbol and some external meaning. Rather, the symbol suggests a variety of associations. That's just a hermeneutical principle there. Okay, let's talk about the hidden manna. Of course, we remember the manna that God gave to the Israelites during the Exodus. The manna was food that God gave to God's people when they were living in a land that didn't have any food. Manna was God's way of sustaining his people who would have died otherwise. The manna also taught the Israelites to rely on God alone for their food. There were no crops to harvest. There were no grapes to pick. Every morning, six days a week, they would go out into into the countryside and gather the manna from the ground. They would always have enough, but they would never have too much because the manna was daily bread. 
Jesus (coughs) taught us to pray for daily bread. He didn't teach us to pray for silos full of grain. He taught us to pray for just enough to get me through this day because when we live that way, we live depending on God and not depending on ourselves. There is a temptation when we have too much to think, oh, I don't really need God right now. I'll I'll check in with God a little bit later when things are tough. We can do it by ourselves. But the discipline of eating manna keeps us in a close relationship with God and keeps us dependent on God. Perhaps the hidden manna is God's promise to sustain these Christians when it seemed like the world that they were living in was going to give them nothing to go on. Whatever the precise meaning, it is clear that this is a promise to sustain the physical lives of faithful Christians. What about the white stone? There are a couple of theories about the white stone based on ancient cultural practices. One theory is that the white stone is an admission ticket to a banquet. Athletes who won in, a, who won in competition were given a white stone that they could then present to be admitted to a feast after the games were over. Another theory is that the white stone is a vote of acquittal in a court of law. Jurors at that time would cast their votes for or against the defendant in in a court of law by tossing a black stone or a white stone into a jar. The white stone would set you free. Now, both of these interpretations could work. To those who hold on to the faith until the end, they will be set free from sin and death. To those who hold on to the faith in the end, yes, they will participate in endless feasting with the people of God in heaven. But what about the name that's on that white stone? I like that we will receive not just a generic white stone, but a white stone with our individual name written on it, a personalized stone. Jesus does not save us generically. He saves us individually and he knows the names of all of his sheep. Okay. I you know it's very important to me. And if if I've had to ask you your name more than one time, I want you to understand this. It's very important to me to know your names. Okay? For most of you, I also know the names of your aunts and uncles and cousins, too. It's important to me. I don't know you generically. Um, Since we've brought in uh, 70 Brazilian members, I've been learning a lot of difficult names, right? But it's important for me to know your names, and Jesus knows your name. Um, There is the promise here, however, that it's going to be a new name. In Isaiah 62, that was our call to worship, I think, this morning. In Isaiah 62, God says that he will give a new name to his people. Not the name that other people has given them, but the name that he has chosen for them. The name that captures their 
true identity. The world has called Zion the forsaken city. The world had called Zion the desolate land. But God says that its new name will be the city of God's delight and the bride of, uh, and the bride of God. It doesn't matter what the world calls us behind our backs. What matters is what name God gives us because that's who we truly are. And the name that God has for us, it's going to be engraved on a stone, not written in sand, but engraved on a stone for all eternity. Our identity, when we're Christians, our identity comes from God himself. So how about you? Does Jesus know your name? Has your name been written in the Lamb's book of life? Has your name been engraved on the palm of God's hand? Has Jesus called your name and said, come here, follow me? Jesus came into this world to seek and to save those who were lost. Jesus said, yes, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him would not be lost but will have eternal life. God sent his son into the world. He didn't send him to judge the world guilty but to save the world through him. Has Jesus come looking for you? Is he calling your name? If you hear Jesus calling your name this morning, you need to respond to that call. You can just say yes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are good and faithful. You are patient and kind. Lord, you loved us by laying your life down for us. You blessed us even when we cursed you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would continue to be patient with those who have not yet said yes to you. Continue to draw them to yourself. Lord, we know that your name is above every name and we know that in the end of time, everyone's going to have to bow a knee to you. But Lord, we pray that you would give us the faith and the trust to bend our knee to you in this life and to do it reverently and to do it thankfully and to do it with gratitude. Lord Jesus, you are the way and the truth and the life. And I pray that we would be found in you. Lord, for those of us who continue to wander and for those of us who are uncertain, Lord, I pray that you give us eyes to see and hearts that are able to respond. Lord, I pray that you would not allow us to be stuck where we are, but that you'd keep after us until you have us. We pray that for our own good, but we pray it for your glory because you deserve all glory, and I do pray this in your precious name. Amen.